So welcome back, everybody. We are here today with a very special guest that I'm looking forward to introducing you to, a friend, neighbor, and fellow community activist, Larry Lowe. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad you're here. Um, I think that you have a lot of value and information to share with folks about getting involved and putting yourself out there. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll, how you and I met. Sure. So on a professional level, I'm a marketing analyst. So that means looking at data to figure out um, how can you improve marketing efforts um, on a business uh, perspective. So I work in the finance, uh, banking, credit union business. Um, so that's what I do professionally. And we met through our po political involvement, uh, working with Sally Harrow as far as her campaign. She was running for the Senate um, in our district. And there, I believe we were sort of the youngest people there uh, compared to probably the median our average age was, uh, has to be at least 50 years old. Um, so that's how we sort of met and sort of started planning out how can we sort of get more involved within our community. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I do remember that you and I were probably half the age of most people in that room. Um, you stuck out to me. I was like, hey, there's somebody else that's uh, below 50 in here. And uh, you're actually a couple of years younger than me, so that's awesome. Um, it, it, and probably a lot of people relate to it um, in their own involvement, whether it is political community. Um, I relate to it through my involvement with the Realtor Association. You know, our average age of a Realtor is 55 and our leadership reflects that very much mm -hmm. so. So there is a large number of growing young Realtors coming into leadership into the industry, um, but we still are a minority in that uh involvement and, and visibility. So what has your experience been um, in the two years since you and I first met? You've been real, real busy and you've been consistent, consistent, which is awesome. Um, but what positive and negative experiences have you had? I would have to say the positive is being involved in the aspect of a lot of people are excited around this election cycle. And when you Sometimes when you're involved with things when people are not necessarily passionate about it, um, you have to use a lot of extra willpower to sort of push them forward and you have to push yourself forward. So that's one of the more um, exciting aspects of it. Uh, the aspect that is not as as appealing is the organizing aspect. You have to deal with a lot of people, a lot of personalities, and sort of trying out different things and trying out new methods can sort of fear create a fear factor within certain groups of people. So I think balancing that aspect of where people are currently and sort of selling them the aspect of how can we better achieve the, our goals. So I think that that's one of the, the more harder aspects of organizing. Awesome. Well, I, I definitely get what you're saying with um, organizing. And as you know, this is what the FUD, so fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, so we're touching all on that with people's fear of letting go of power, um, welcoming new people in the space. Are they going to be involved? I know um, in my own just leadership within my, my industry that it's very hard to find people who are committed to the same level, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are people who want to step up, but you've got people that really are just looking at it as like a climbing the ladder resume builder. And there's a much smaller number of people that are doing it because they are trying to move industry forward or, or mm -hmm. politics community. Um, do you see the same thing in the community arena? Yeah, so the people, I do see a lot of people get involved and they're looking for a resume builder. and. 
my aspect of power is you want to acquire power to sort of empower other people to get more involved. Um, that's been sort of a theme that keeps popping up for me. And particularly on Martin Luther King weekend is that he had a quote in which he was focusing on what's the good of power if you don't have the moral power to empower other people. Um, so I think that sort of weeding out or identifying those people who are purely seeking power just to have power are people who are more interested in using their own power to sort of empower others. It's, it can sometimes be a challenge in understanding where other people are coming from and how to navigate those relationships. So I think that that's, that's the key. Uh, our generation, they are great at challenging power or seeking power, but once they get it, they don't know how to wield it appropriately to sort of enhance other people's lives. So I think that that's something that our generation has to sort of um, hone in on while other generations coming up behind us there. If you look at the March for, for Our Lives, they're very great at sort of honing power and using it to sort of help empower other people. So that's an aspect of understanding power and how to use it appropriately. Yeah, I think it's a, a awesome, awesome feedback. See, you guys, I told you this podcast is all about empowering people. And so everybody that's going to come on is somebody that I feel is um, working to empower their own community and people around them. And Larry is a perfect example. And I think great to be our first guest. Um, so thinking about that, let's say that you did have somebody that came in and maybe they were doing it for somewhat of a selfish reason or, or a resume building. Um, how, how do you think we could inspire them and show them the other way, right? You know, getting involved, you can build your resume, but let's also actually do this. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any experience with that? I have to say it's a challenge for me right now, considering that it's in the middle of election cycle. So there's going to be a lot of people that comes around and say um, they want to win a certain office and you've never seen these people before. So I think it's understanding what figure first you have to figure out who is actually seeking power for just for the sake of power. And once you identify those type of people, you know where to categorize them and you know how to challenge them or challenge yourself on how to deal with them. For instance, if you know someone is just seeking office for a specific name or notoriety, sometimes you may want to play into that disorder to get them to see things from a different perspective. Um, so for instance, if you had a real estate um, bill that you wanted to have pushed through the legislature, I would sort of play into the aspect of this would give them more press and more leverage within a real estate company or real estate industry and wield that power to sort of get your legislation through. Um, in the past, it's been something that I've sort of struggled with. I've sort of tried to run away from people who try to seek, seek a certain status or position through power. Um, but I think that sometimes you have, you have to identify the key players and then use your, your willingness to empower other people to sort of wheel those people into, inside, into the right direction. And that took you a while to kind of come to that, I guess, maybe realization or thought process. Yeah. It's, it's something that I'm still learning uh, on, a, I guess, learning on the job. Um, but it's definitely something that's kind of been hard for, or a challenge for me. Awesome. I, I can, again, relate kind of in the real estate industry with the same things of uh, sometimes, you know, learning what's the most effective, going slow. I kind of find myself to be 
um, in the middle when it comes to pacing for things. But it's interesting because people that are, we are a very conservative, slow moving industry. And so the vast majority of people think that I'm very fast moving and pushy. Um, but then I'm like, well, wait, there's actually these other people over here that are wanting to be involved, but they want things to move even faster. So believe mm -hmm. it or not, I'm actually kind of buffering them and helping them have realis realistic expectations about timelines and processes and how we get to the eventual process. So it's, it's always interesting to kind of see uh, maybe people's different perspectives, but then learn to work with people and utilize everybody's strengths mm -hmm. in different ways to accomplish something. Um, kind of along that same line um, is, you know, one thing that I've really admired about you is that even in your political play and being involved in the community is that you don't just go along with sort of what the, the crowd is saying at the moment. And mm -hmm. so I often see you, you know, you're, I, I feel that you're very methodical and you have very educated, informed positions. And those are not always, you know, completely following mm -hmm. the mainstream. And so I'll see you share information with somebody and you'll see, see people I've been telling you about like XYZ and mm -hmm. or this fact in, in locally, especially local politics. Um, can you tell me about kind of your process to become comfortable in maybe going against the mainstream and standing out on your own? Sure. So I work in with data in uh, as an analyst and so i always take on an approach of well what does the data say well, does it tell us something different that we're not very aware of um if you look at the data is that something that we need to sort of hone in on to sort of optimize to sort of see if we get a different outcome versus the present outcomes that we're currently getting um so being able to sort of see things from all different perspectives um understanding that some people speak anecdotally based off of their experience of of interacting with this type of type of group of people on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've brought in different experiences based off of where I've been. So for instance, I'm from a small town, a small country town in Louisiana. Now I live in a metro area um, that is very big and has mass transit, transit and other things that I've never been exposed to before. And before that, I went to a liberal arts college. So I have different life experiences and I understand that people have different perspectives, uh, but your perspectives can sometimes be invalid if you don't have any facts or data to back that up. Uh, so that's sort of the perspective that I take in life. Um, if I can't prove it based off of my experience within different uh, within different life cycles or different uh, atmospheres or, or, or college or anything else in the past, I can't take your word for it. So that's sort of the ways in which I sort of approach things in the past. So do you think some people um, kind of jump out there and just make kind of these assumptions because it's almost, if you will, like a, a fear, right? Of, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you want to fit in. It's easier to fit in and maybe like repeat what you're hearing said rather than looking at, mm -hmm. you know, your own, per going back in your personal experience and the data and maybe saying, hey, you're close, but not, you know, here's like another side to it. Um, you know, do you see that as being some people having that fear of judgment? Um, so therefore they don't add their own voice. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes there's a, a concept called groupthink in which people follow along with what other people say at that particular time because they have a fear of standing out or they think that their opinion is um, completely unpopular. And so when you're within a group setting 
and you're a, a victim of groupthink, you go along with things without even recognizing that you're going along with certain things. Um, so one of the ways in which you can sort of upheaval that or or get out of that mind frame is, is to try new things and then also look at different perspectives. So for instance, if I'm a liberal or progressive, I also look at and read things off of the American conservative. Or if I'm more um, what they call neoliberal, sometimes I will go on Jacobin and read some of the things that they have to say just to see different things from a different perspective and being able to sort of hone that in or sensitize that information to something that aligns with my own values. That That's so so much value in that. Like I, actually yeah. there's so, so many points that I, I should have been writing down I wanted to make there. But uh, I think, you know, it goes back to, again, getting out of the bubble. Mm -hmm. You know, like you were saying, your own life experience is really a culmination of different atmospheres. So mm -hmm. you've lived in some of those different things. And I really find that a lot of people haven't done that. Um, and I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I, I could have, I could have got myself more out of the bubble. I have some experiences from my dad was in the air force. We, uh, lived in Germany for a while. So mm -hmm. that really forms a lot of my sustainability, um, beliefs. And then of course, you know, who is in my family, mm -hmm. you know, my husband and my kids, they have very different life experiences than me, um, that have added to that vibrancy, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, but yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't get out of that bubble. And especially when we talk like political thought, I think it's really important to understand other people's angles. Like when mm -hmm. I'm working in, again, in the real estate industry, it is a very conservative, right-leaning thought process mm -hmm. uh, for many people. And so I have to, I can get great action from those people by understanding what their motives are mm -hmm. and aligning what I'm trying to do from a more progressive front on climate change, on inclusion within our industry, on fair housing by making not only the case of why I'm doing it, but also the case that relates to them. Um, and it's very powerful because if not, then you're just sort of like talking just out of your one side and you're not connecting to the other side. And, you know, they, they're just as guilty about like putting a wall up to people who are different. Um, so I do find that connecting with people, like whether it's talking their language in a way, mm -hmm. um, talking to their values, um, but just also treating people like, like a human being like they mm -hmm. are instead of just like the adversary really goes far so that's that's huge and i think especially in a time like now where yeah. so much of the conversation is broken down we have to go back to that place mm -hmm. and um i will say one thing i've really learned in my leadership position with the realtor associations is um really to separate the personal right from from the statement the mission and that really is the secret mm -hmm. to it is understanding that we're both here for a purpose and how can we work together? I don't think enough people um, get that. I have an opinion and I'd be curious to think what or, or to hear what your thought is on it. And I, I feel like a lot of the people or some of the people maybe that are so polarized that they have actually never worked with somebody different mm -hmm. than them. So they've never... Um, actually had to kind of have two meetings of the mind and come out with a solution at the end, mm -hmm. right? Do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that one of the major problems that we are facing now is that everybody wants to be right <laughs> and they want to prove that they're right. And when they're proving that they're not right, sometimes they kind of distort their whole notion of who they are as a person. So people align a lot of their values closely aligned to 
who they are and their values don't change at all. So for instance, I grew up in the strict religious evangelical home. And so understanding how they, they think their belief system is strictly a definition of who they are. And sometimes when you challenge people about who they are, mm. they can sort of take offense to that. Uh, so I think that sometimes that when we go into situations, having a notion that I'm going to prove the other person wrong and prove that I'm right can sometimes be a major hindrance in sort of understanding other people's perspective or, or how they choose to view things or their own values. That's that's awesome. That's really a lot of power in there. So another, what I would say is kind of a, um, a divisive topic that's coming up is affordable housing. And, and you've shared a lot, so I really want to um, dig into that with you. But I really see affordable housing as a bit of a, um, a divisive subject in a way, right? Because so being in the Realtor Association, I would say that a lot of my uh, more conservative colleagues, when they hear affordable, they immediately think government subsidized, mm-hmm. rent control, you know, all of these, like, as they would recall, call it socialist programs, mm-hmm. right? And so I feel like we're constantly having to like redefine and come up with new terms to like move past the labels that were thrown, mm-hmm. which I think is I think that's part of the plot. I think you know I think that it is. It's sort of like let's attack it so we can have a conversation. Um, but I do see some some growth on that side of people coming in and realizing they have to do it. Especially as when we have the conversation, we have to like look at American exceptionalism and say that this is about teachers and firefighters and police officers, mm-hmm. right? Like when we talk about like you know kind of public servants in that way i think we get a little a little further along but on on the other side as well like even from my own side is that i see sometimes that if if we um don't look at things like rent control or subsidized housing that somehow we're not doing it right so let's go deep into affordable housing what you see here in atlanta and let's talk about you know maybe let's throw some solutions out there because i love to say to throw solutions out rather mm-hmm. than just like no's, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me your thoughts on affordable housing. Sure. So I'm interested in, in affordable housing because as a 30-year-old black male, equity is sort of a, a, a key component of how I think that our generation can sort of help build wealth. And if you look at it historically, the history of redlining and also subprime loans is something that has been a hindrance within our communities to sort of help build that long term equity. Where if your college, if you if somebody that you're raising or your um, or your student in your home needs to go to college, you can sort of build equity and pull out equity through some type of HELOC loan or any other um, aspect of refinancing the home. And I think that that's been sort of a hindrance as far as closing the wealth gap and looking at history of how different subsidized loans loans from the federal government, particularly with underneath the Roosevelt administration, has sort of excluded certain communities outside of acquiring equity, has sort of been a hindrance in which we still have that racial divide um, now uh, within the United States. So that's something that I've been um, very adamant about trying to figure out a solution. Um, One of the solutions that I think that we should have is basically more housing being available and built versus giving out tax credits to luxury building. 
And I think that that's one of the major issues within the Atlanta region. If you look at who they're giving tax credits to, it sort of creates a bigger gap in which middle class people or people who don't have that type of political pull can sort of take advantage of that. Yeah, so I want to go back to the beginning that you started with, um, and this is something I've witnessed that is just like truly eye-opening, uh, witnessing firsthand, and that is really like you were saying, wealth building. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you own a home, over time the value goes up, right? Even when we have dips, they come back, and you you can look at historic um, projection, not projections, but historic values mm-hmm. of the real estate market and we've even recovered and surpassed from the dip uh and the, the the recession uh that we had a decade ago so along this line of wealth so there's a lot of things you can do with refinancing from you know consolidating debt and getting out of higher interest rate but the big things are things like that we really associate with wealth are like businesses right mm-hmm. so many white families will start a business by refinancing their home, right? Um, We were actually just recently watching a documentary about a family that had a very uh, high medical need child, and they were really only able to get um, the care that they needed because they were able to refinance their home. So if a family doesn't have that ability, whether it's because they're locked out of housing uh, and affordability, or let's say that they live in a neighborhood that is not... um, gaining in value then Mm -hmm. you don't have that access that some people just assume that it's there right i mean so many of of people like me just it's an assumed thing you know i'm gonna have value in my house and i can take it out but also seeing my friends now that my friends and and you know i have some friends a little bit older than me but seeing their parents pass on and who's getting wealth and who's not right um white families are usually passing on a home to their children and um, most of my friends of color are not in that situation. So when I look at, and even like my, my husband, for example, you know, there was no quarter million dollar inheritance handed down from the parent that then helps that child, mm-hmm. you know, do something of their own, pay off their debt, uh, invest, pass to their children, whatever they do with it. You know, and those are things that are just constantly building, right? Mm-hmm. So affordable housing isn't even just, you know, as simple as getting somebody into a house it's about all this other economic side and then i could go on forever just about stability of housing you know having children um disadvantaged children from foster care that that we adopted um you know the the disadvantages that they have because of instability in housing so we we (laughs) we could we could go on really deep but these are those things i don't think people really look at but i was really curious you mentioned like financing options Mm -hmm. um do you envision like public private partnerships, you know, there are down payment assistance programs, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in DeKalb, in Atlanta, there are various ones. Are you familiar with them? And do you think they go far enough? So I'm not that familiar with them. um, But I think that also the housing options in which the location determines the value of your home can also have an impact. So for instance, if I was looking at a home right now, the homes would be more on the south side of the camp. And those homes have been sort of slow to recover since the recession. And so having access to the down payment and being able to move to south of the camp can also have a hindrance on me traveling from that area all the way up to Duluth for work. So those are other outside factors that sort of factor in into um, those type of government programs. Uh, to help you build that wealth. So I think that 
there are other aspects that sort of help determine where you're going to be within the within uh, within the, the wealth building aspect of home buying. So uh, two things I want to touch on there. Um, so one, you mentioned um, we're talking about these these programs, and I will actually put it on my industry a little bit. The mm-hmm. truth is that you know there are some programs out there, but um, as real estate professionals, we tend to be um, not knowledgeable about them. There's a mm-hmm. lot of people that just don't know anything. There's also a lot of misconceptions that get spread around our industry, whether it's financing type, whether it's you know something to do with down payment assistance. And you'll hear people say like, oh, don't ever accept a buyer with an FH. If you're, mm-hmm. let's say it's your listing, you know, don't accept a buyer that's a VA because their appraisals are always come back low. Don't um, work with FHA because that's a headache. And I think what a lot of it is, a lot of it is just these outdated misconceptions mm-hmm. um, of programs that the way it used to be. And most of these programs have really gotten so much smoother um, and these things don't happen. I work with all types of buyers with all types of programs. Yes, there are some programs that are a little more difficult, um, but you know, I really think it's us as real estate professionals, it's our job to be making sure that if people want to be in homeownership, that they have access. Um, and it's really exciting because the National Association of Realtors, after the uh, Long Island Board of Realtor expose mm-hmm. from last year, they have really responded um, quickly um, to that, and they have passed this new um, measurement to truly be a leading voice on fair housing. So we'll see how it's implemented over the next year. Um, we're going to be doing some stuff here at the Atlanta Realtor Association, and, and I'm sure that NAR will be pushing some stuff down. So hopefully that'll help on that side. Um, and I forgot the other part of your the thing I was going to mention, but uh, so we'll we'll just kind of jump over that. But luxury building, I think that's a great great perspective <clears throat> because you look at all of the the apartments, and it's not just an Atlanta mm-hmm. phenomenon; it's really national. Like all these luxury apartments right Mm -hmm. it's like apparently there's all these people out there that they can put in these places and what we're doing is we're missing that middle and lower end housing not everybody Mm -hmm. needs to live in a you know a a apartment with soaring ceilings and quartz countertops and all Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff um what do you see as possible solutions to get more varied housing stock created so i think that one of the challenges that I've, based off of my experience, is that there isn't a clear definition of what luxury is, and I think if there was some type of legislation to sort of legislate, legislation or bill that could sort of help define what luxury is, it can sort of help um, build more affordable housing. And again, going back to affordable housing, I think it's thirty-three percent of your income, and then for some people. Affordable who are making a hundred k annually, thirty three percent is a, something totally different from somebody who's just making fifty k annually. True. Um, so I think that having a clear definition of what is affordable and also what is a luxury home can sort of help define uh, or help open up opportunities for more building and rezoning of different areas in which you can have more tailored affordability for different people within different income brackets. So some interesting things developing on that front is um, there is a bill dropped um, last session. So it's still alive for this year for 2020. Uh, I think there's actually two. I think there's a House version Mm -hmm. and a Senate version. And it's essentially like the building standards bill. So some jurisdictions have started to place 
um, very um, restrictive minimum standards on housing. So like, for example, outside of Atlanta, and I think it's in Oconee County or Greene County out there by Lake Oconee, they have a no slab. Uh, no house can be on slabs. They all have to be on basements of some sort, which mm-hmm. you know often is like a thirty thousand dollar upgrade minimum for the cost of a house, but doesn't necessarily add value, right? Or for example, here closer to Atlanta, one of the things that's kind of being looked at is um, minimum design standards on the outside, as far as telling you, you know, what kind of products are used on the outside that are mm-hmm. then driving up cost. Um, it's an interesting perspective. I'm a little nervous about it because from leading on the sustainability side, I, I'm not completely convinced that they aren't also trying to attack like sustainability standards, mm-hmm. which with sustainability standards, energy efficiency, you're talking about lowering the total overall cost on a month to month basis. Mm-hmm. So some of those slightly higher costs and they're, some of them are pretty minimal. Um, pay back dividends big time on on the other end. Um, And I just haven't been convinced enough that they um, aren't also going to be hindering things like Mm -hmm. that. And I'm just also slightly distrustful of things that are when the realtors at this moment, the State Realtor Association talks about fair housing because I just don't view them as truly behind that as the local association. Like the local associations, Mm -hmm. I do believe them when they say that. And I do believe the National Association but the state association, I don't. So I just kind of feel like they're when we were talking mm-hmm. about talking to other people and trying to get them in, you know, in consensus with you. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like they're dangling a carrot um, that may be a false carrot to get the other side on. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, but you know, maybe that's one possible way of addressing the quote unquote luxury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think that? In addition to that, is there sort of like a suburban mindset in which people view success as a suburban home with a white picket fence versus a more urban, condensed, uh, well, more dense development? Do you think that that's a problem also? I do. And and so I, you're, we'll, we'll go deep again. Um, I actually think this is really kind of like an American thing, right? Mm-hmm. We, yeah. we, Bigger is better in every way. So, you know, we do see in some people, for example, they get the big suburban house with five or six bedrooms um, and they have to have that many bedrooms because well once a year over the holidays you know they might have people visit and so they need to make sure that for those few days a year their house can very comfortably accommodate that but then on a day-to-day basis they're you know paying for that space they're paying for that energy Um, and so this kind of you're kind of going I think toward like right sizing our house is that kind of where you're think where you're where the conversation is going yeah i think that for instance we have a housing shortage um you know you have to meet the demand of people who are looking for a home and i think because if we there's a a strong push culturally in america to have a suburban big size home that that's sort of a hindrance of of people actually being able to acquire houses because there's a, a shortage of that type of um home so this I see. I told you this. This is like hitting so much at the heart of like this um, this podcast and like what I hope we do over the years. So first of all, I think a lot of that comes from what our parents told us, right? Mm-hmm. So our parents' generations, you know, post World War II, that's the bigger the house got, the you know, the more suburban it was, the more success you had, and you visualized it. And I think. I think our generation, millennials and younger, I think we're starting to break from that, but we have to be able to say, okay, 
mom and dad, we're not going to follow what you tell us success is. We're going to do our own version of success. And I do see that happening. You know, I do hear builders say like that they, the only reason they're only building like these 4,000, 3,000, 4,000 square foot, you know, six, seven, $800,000 homes is because it's all that anybody wants. But I don't see that, you know, I, I see a lot of people that are 400 and below and they mm-hmm. would love to be able to buy something. Yes, it would have to be smaller and maybe lower finishes, but if they would build them, they would be there. And in my own personal experience, I can relate to this in with electric vehicles, right? You know, so everybody knows Tesla is just on a rip and they, they can't even make cars fast enough. But if you listen to the, um, legacy automakers they just put piece after piece out saying nobody wants electric vehicles and we don't build them because nobody wants them but the truth is they either don't build them or when they do build them at this point they're so prohibitively expensive even compared to a tesla and their use case is like drastically hindered compared to a tesla so um kind of relating that back to to housing is just i kind of feel like the market is telling us what we want rather than Mm -hmm. us telling the market what we what what Mm. we want and them doing it and um part of that is legislation so an interesting case here by us is the city of doraville Mm -hmm. right so they have some very interesting minimums because they when when the area was growing um they didn't want apartments and and you know they didn't want affordable housing so they passed some really strict minimums in their um in their municipality for like size of home i think it's minimum 2,500 square feet, which is a pretty decent size house. Mm -hmm. Um, And some other things like that, that really limit what they are able to put in. But now what's really exciting is that, you know, because of the growth that's happened from Brookhaven to Shambly and they have Marta Rail in Doraville, you know, there's a lot of interest in people wanting to live there. But at the moment, they still have those minimums. So they're kind of preserved. But people on city council are looking at, you know, how do we change these to create affordable and innovative housing so i really think it'll be interesting to watch doraville and i've been telling the realtors we need to support doraville work with them have dialogue you know um as realtors we just tend to condemn what municipalities do there's very few times where we're working with the municipality to create something but i think that doraville could be a really interesting uh use case to watch and test out new things because i don't think anybody has quite cracked affordable housing yet nationally everybody's kind of suffering with it um but you know if we go back to talking about right sizing um there are a couple developments from adus to pocket neighborhoods going around atlanta what do you find most exciting Hmm. to be honest i don't know (laughs) i don't know um what what would i find the most exciting i'm not i'm not sure i haven't been paying that close of attention Oh, we'll have more conversations about that then. Okay. There, there is, there, we're starting to culminate a lot of things. I mean, I think one is that um, we really are hitting, you know, our prices continue to go up every mm-hmm. year. Luckily, our rates are low. So houses, I would say houses are a little more affordable than people realize. I'm not saying that everybody can afford a house. But as a realtor, I often encounter people that don't truly realize what, say, $250,000 looks like on a month-to-month basis you know it just mm-hmm. 250,000 is a big number and you know somebody might be paying $1,700 $1,800 a month in rent 
and not realize what that could get them in a house. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and of course, based on where they're looking at, what might actually be available. Um, I, I typically work with, my average price point is like between four and 500,000, but I do work with all price points. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's very actually a very interesting issue that's popped up is once I got my Tesla and then as I've also started having more higher price points in my business, a lot of my first time buyers and therefore lower price point customers um, have been working with me less because either one of two things, they either think I don't need the money, which I, I want to work with everybody because my, my goal really is to help people get a house mm-hmm. and to have really great representation that's I think of myself as like a bulldog for people. Um, so I, you know, I, I want to help people at all price points. I still work at all price points. Um, so some people think, oh, he doesn't need the money. I'll go work with somebody else. Or they think that I don't work that price point. And it's really unfortunate. Um, I don't know how, how to really kind of change that. But I just find, especially with first-time buyers and, and or people who maybe got burned during the recession and jumped are renting and haven't bought yet is just that they just don't have all the facts and Mm -hmm. so i spend a lot of time with potential clients kind of talking them through that but you've got to know that they're even open to it first and have them be willing to engage in that so awareness and education might be a piece and then of course i think um just innovative zoning and construction projects in the private public partnerships um do you have any any kind of like final thoughts on, on housing affordability? I would have to say understanding me as a potential buyer is understanding where I am in life. Um, sometimes people view house as a, a permanent buy versus an investment. So for instance, if I'm single in my early 30s, I might not want to be in that house forever. So I might need to check out different housing options versus, I mean, not housing, but financing options versus somebody who is 50, planning on retirement. All of their kids are almost out the house, so they might be looking to downsize and that might be their forever home. And I think taking on that perspective of not only wealth building, but also investment uh, and how long you want that investment to have, how long you want to invest inside of that property to get your return is something that we particularly black people need to take a, a more uh, a deeper look at as far as financing options no so you bring up an interesting perspective um and this is one that even me as a realtor until a couple of years ago i wasn't even aware of are you are you aware of the multicultural real estate organizations and particularly mm-hmm. um narev or the the realtist and here in atlanta they're called the empire board no, I never heard of them. So there are actually five multicultural real estate organizations. Um, and I mean, they are exactly what it sounds like. Um, you know, because back in the day, mm-hmm. essentially white men were realtors and other people either couldn't be mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, that was before fair housing as well. So there is um, NAREV, the National Association. I believe it's a real estate brokers and they uh, have their own term, a realtist instead of a realtor. Um, and that they've used that um, for over 70 years mm-hmm. before they were allowed to be realtors. Um, and they've been here in Atlanta forever. They were the original advocates for fair housing back in the day when the realtors were not. Um, and then, of course, there's ARIA, which is the Asian Real Estate Association of America, as I believe what it stands for. They are actually the largest Asian trade association. 
Um, there's NAREP, the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. The chapter here in Atlanta is huge and, and just, I think, was a chapter of the year national uh, for last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, Hispanic home ownership is on the rise. They are mm-hmm. the, the, the group that is growing the most. Um, there is NAGAREP, the National Association of Gay and Lesbian Real Estate Professionals. And LGBT people are the final um, or the, the last group that is not protected in fair housing. We can still be discriminated against uh, both uh, national level, state level, and there are some. There are seven cities in the in the state of Georgia now. Uh, most of them in DeKalb County that have passed non discrimination ordinances that expand fair housing. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we're not protected. And of course, there's WCR, which is the Women's Council of Realtors, and um, they always they've been very close to the Realtor uh, Association over the years. Um, but NARE, the reason I bring that up is because it is always interesting to me. Um, how sometimes communities aren't aware of of these diverse real estate groups that have been around that have you know tried to advance fair housing and they're still still around today um but it is interesting i i'm really curious to see um you know what the realtists do here locally um they are you know they we are they are working you know i was actually at a meeting with all five of our organizations in the, the state uh, Association Georgia Association of Realtors, um, I, two weeks a week ago today actually, mm-hmm. and uh, you know so we are gaining an audience and and whatnot. But you know all of our communities, African American, Asian, um, uh, LGBT, we are not experiencing huge growth in home ownership. Um, in fact, when we talk about sort of perception, uh, not necessarily matching reality is that I frequently work with LGBT clients uh, who do find me. And sometimes, uh, in fact, they don't always know that I'm LGBT. In fact, I had a referral from a high school friend. It was her cousin and her wife um, coming to me. And they were very nervous about coming out to me. I already knew they were lesbians before I met them because, you know, I was, she let me know. My friend did. And uh, so they were very nervous about telling me and they were very nervous about how it would impact them going to look at a house. So think about that. I mean, people of color, um, LGBT people, they still have a fear about trying and even, you know, even going, talking, mm-hmm. you know, talking to a realtor. Is this agent going to be um, discriminatory? What is lending going to be like? I remember I, I gave them several names of lenders that I've worked with and uh and my lender partner called me after speaking with them. He's like, oh, my gosh, they were so nervous about, you know, me catching on to their relationship. And, you know, it just it it broke my heart. But um, they ended up buying a house. We got them done really quickly and um, they didn't experience any issue. And they bought out uh, in Winder, you know, so a good 45 minutes outside of Atlanta. And I was a little nervous. I actually was because, you know, I I I grew up in Gwinnett. I, you know been out in that area (laughs) and it's not always been the most friendly and i was a little worried that when we submitted offers they would see you know two women's name on the offer and then of course my name and the thing is you know if that agent or the seller were to just google me they're gonna you know i don't hide Mm -hmm. um and would that be an issue but luckily for me i have not experienced an issue where you know me being an lgbt agent for someone has been an issue so that's really refreshing even when i've sold houses far out but it is it's that again that perception and you know how do we get information out to communities 
that want to own a home but don't think they can. Hmm. That's that's a, a hard question to answer. Um, I think if people are if if they are offered more like home buying seminars and if they have they see more people that look like them um, come and present to them those different options, they might become more easier as far as easier as far as a, a adopting new new ways of buying homes. So I think it's it's a combination of representation and also having that reputation of go, representation to go out within a community to um, present more to 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 them. Awesome, awesome. Um, well, I think that's a great first episode for us. I think we definitely have to come back in and talk as the election season goes on, as more of this stuff with the National Association of Realtors with their ACT, which I love, stands for Accountability, uh, Culture Change, and Training. Um, and I'm sure we'll have lots more to talk about. It's going to be a busy season and a busy year. And I kind of expect this to be um, one of the most talked about issues. So I do want to thank you for coming on today. Um, and maybe next time um, I do actually want to start um, doing recording and video simultaneously so I can throw this on YouTube as well. So next time we may do video simultaneously. But um, in case anybody wants to connect with you, um, what's your social media? So my Twitter handle is the Larry Low, and most of my social media is that T H E Larry Low L O W E. So that's how you can contact me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Larry. And again, I'm Christopher Matos Rogers, and we'll come at you next time. I hope you got massive value from today's episode. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get updates on our future episodes. Then head over to Facebook and like our page, What the Fud, so you can join the conversation in the community. Also check out whatthefud.com. I'm Christopher Matos Rogers, your host. Find me on social media and let me know if you'd like to be on a future episode. Until next time.